Hello Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in December in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Look towards the east after sunset and you'll spot a V-shaped pattern of stars rising above the horizon. These stars represent the head of the constellation Taurus the Bull, with the eye of the bull marked by bright orange-red giant star Aldebaran. As the bull makes its way across the sky, it is followed by the constellation Orion the Hunter. Orion is easy to spot thanks to the diagonal line of three stars that mark Orion's belt. Have a look below the belt and you'll spot the stars that represent Orion's sword. Two of the brightest stars in the sky can be found in Orion. Rigel, a blue-white supergiant, and Betelgeuse, a red supergiant. Draw a line from Rigel through Betelgeuse and you'll spot the twin stars Castor and Pollux in the constellation Gemini the Twins. All three constellations are home to fantastic deep sky objects. You'll find the Orion Nebula in Orion's Sword, the Crab Nebula alongside one of the horns of Taurus, and the open star cluster M35 in Gemini. Between the constellations of Perseus and Cassiopeia lies the double cluster in Perseus. Consisting of a pair of open star clusters, the double cluster is visible to the unaided eye in dark sky areas and is a spectacular sight through a pair of binoculars. To locate the double cluster, first find the distinct W-shaped constellation, Cassiopeia, and then draw a line from Gamma Cassiopeia through Delta Cassiopeia, two of the stars within it, towards Perseus, and then you'll spot the brilliant blue-white stars that dominate the double cluster. Both clusters actually lie over 7,000 light-years away from the Earth and are only a few million years old. This makes them much younger than our 4.5 billion-year-old Sun. Skywatchers with an unobstructed view towards the southwestern horizon will see the planet Venus shining brightly in the sky. Keep an eye on Venus from the beginning of the month and you'll see the planet move across the sky towards Saturn. On December 10th, Venus will lie below Saturn with the two planets reaching conjunction, where they share the same ecliptic longitude, on December 11th. After dominating the summer night sky, Jupiter begins the month low above the southwestern horizon after sunset and will disappear from view by the middle of the month. The distant ice giants Uranus and Neptune are still up in the evening sky this month. Wait for clear and dark skies and grab a telescope to spot these planets. For early risers, the red planet Mars rises at around 5am hugging the horizon until it gets lost in the light from the rising sun. Then, on the night of the 14th of December, and in the early hours of the 15th, sky watchers will be treated to the peak of the last of this year's major meteor showers, the Geminids. Meteors, which are also commonly referred to as shooting stars, are actually pieces of debris that enter the Earth's atmosphere 
and burn up, producing the streaks of light that we see during a meteor shower. The source of debris for this meteor shower is an asteroid called Phaethon, making the Geminids one of the only major meteor showers not originating from a comet. The Geminids have been known to produce spectacular displays with over 100 meteors per hour at the peak of the shower. Unfortunately though, the moon is not in a favourable phase for this year's shower, with the full moon occurring on the 12th. But to improve your chances of spotting some meteors, wrap up warm and head out to a dark sky location and aim your gaze about 45 degrees away from the bright star Castor in the constellation Gemini, or try spotting a few meteors earlier in the month before the moon reaches its first quarter phase. The winter solstice occurs on December 22nd and marks the beginning of astronomical winter. On this day, the northern hemisphere has its maximum tilt away from the sun and we will experience the fewest hours of daylight. For those missing the long days of summer, the good news is that after the winter solstice, the days will start to get longer and the nights shorter. In the meantime, use the extra hours of darkness to enjoy the wonders of the winter night sky. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, then please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, which is rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news story part of our podcast and every month we pick a story that has broken in the world of astronomy or space exploration and we have a chat to you about it now for attentive listeners you may have noticed that we have a new astronomer joining us for our podcast or not new i'm but back a returning astronomer to our podcast so we welcome dara back into the cosmic diary slash look up podcast it's so good to be back i've missed talking about space news and uncovering some of the the good stories that are are coming out each month so yeah it's lovely to be joining you again well it's great to be working with you and we of course have to thank greg for the fantastic stories that he came up with junior and the little competition that i had with greg as to see who would win the most number of twitter polls on our stories which will share the results of that perhaps in our next podcast but we're going to have a look at what the stories that we've both found interesting this month. So, Dara, what have you chosen to talk about this month? So, I came across a story where I was like, this has a really interesting title. Um, usually, size doesn't matter, right? But actually, for the story I've chosen, it really does. But when I'm talking about size, I'm not talking about how big necessarily an object is. I'm talking about its mass, how much material it contains. And that's usually a very big thing in astronomy. So this, uh, the story that I found actually is that scientists have discovered that the mass of a galaxy can actually determine the direction in which a galaxy spins. Which I was like, how did they do this? Um, especially when we think about with our universe, there is no real up or down. No. There is no direction. Um, so I thought what we do is start off with the base of what are they using to measure their direction against? So we're going to take ourselves back to the start of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago, where we had our Big Bang. Now, this was followed by uh, a period known as inflation. So we had the brief accelerated expansion of our universe for just a few seconds after that Big Bang. And after the inflation period had ended, we had some of our fundamental particles. So things like uh, the quarks that make up 
particles like protons and neutrons. We had tiny little electrons. Uh, and we also had dark matter particles that had been created too. Now, our universe at that point was still a big, hot, thick, dense soup of all sorts of particles and light. But it meant that light kept bumping into all these particles. It couldn't actually freely move as such. Uh, we say that uh, the light was kind of bound in that early universe. But the fact that the photons kept bouncing off all the material meant that the material couldn't really be pulled together by gravity and form dense little parts in the universe. So it stopped matter basically from starting to clump together. Let's take ourselves 380,000 years later, when the universe had then expanded and cooled enough. Um, light could now freely travel throughout the universe. It's not bumping into all these particles that were around. And that meant that matter could then start coming together due to gravity. It wasn't being broken apart by the radiation pressure from these photons. But dark matter had already been doing that. Dark matter doesn't interact with light. Um, so dark matter had already been having, uh, clumping together essentially, creating structures within our universe. Now that matter was able to do the same, it actually started being drawn to where the dark matter was already very dense. The dark matter had already grown into kind of areas or networks where it was really dense and then some of the areas where it was relatively empty, so big empty regions. And that's how the matter started to align itself too. So what we have in our universe now is a structured network of filaments. It's like a, a big spider's web essentially in space where you've got this skeleton-like structure where we find most of the galaxies and the mass, but you've got these huge voids between it. Now, cosmic filaments are what we call that skeletal structure. These are massive thread-like formations. And like I mentioned, they're made of the galaxies and the, the dust that we have. But modeling also implies that that's where the dark matter is as well. Now, some of these filaments can be 500 million light years long. I don't think people really comprehend how big no, that is. That's enormous. We always use the, the, the kind of traveling at the speed of light uh, example. So 500 million light years is a distance um, that is so large. If you were stood at one end of that 500 million light years and you had someone else standing 500 million light years away from you and you send them a text message traveling at the speed of light, it would take 500 million years for them to get that text message, which is incredible. That's a long wait for a double tick on WhatsApp. <laughs> You'd be waiting a very long time. Um, so they can be really long, 500 million light years long. But these filaments are only about 20 million light years wide. So you can imagine they're quite stringy in a sense. They're quite long, but very, very thin. So the universe is divided into this gravitationally linked lattice. And it's got huge voids of empty regions in between. So cosmic filaments are like the, the highway for galactic interactions. It's along these filaments that galaxies are moving and eventually maybe colliding and merging into each other. So that's what this story is sort of centered around. Those scientists who found that the mass of a galaxy can actually help us determine the direction in which the galaxy spins. Um, they're using the cosmic filaments as their base for their direction. So they're looking at the nearest cosmic filament to wherever this galaxy is that they found, and they're looking at how the galaxy spins in relation to the direction of that filament. Now, researchers altogether looked at 
just over 1400 galaxies so a huge amount of galaxies which were all very different sizes as well and they used data that was gathered by an instrument called SAMI and as we know astronomers love their acronyms we do um, so SAMI is an instrument at Australia's Anglo-Australian Telescope and SAMI is an acronym for here we go Sydney which is where it is AAO which is the Australian Astronomical Observatory multi-object which implies it's looking at many objects uh, and then integral field spectrograph which is probably the most complicated bit of that uh, acronym but integral field is basically uh, the idea of being able to use images in the sky but also being able to take spectra of the the light that you collect from those objects um, so that's the instrument they were using uh, and some of you may have actually heard of a spectrum or spectroscopy or spectrograph. What is it that a spectrograph can do, though, to help us find how a galaxy spins? Um, so spectroscopy is a technique that we use of collecting and then splitting out the light of an object to create what we call a spectrum of light. I always like to imagine it as very basic in my head as possible as white light going into a prism and splitting out into the colours of the rainbow, all the way from red to violet. And similarly, scientists can do the same with the light that we can't see with our eyes. So they can do the same with ultraviolet light or infrared light or other types of light too. When we look at objects in space, sometimes they have dark lines marked on the spectra that we see from them. Some of them have many dark lines, a bit like a barcode. We call those dark lines absorption lines. So they're being caused when light is absorbed as that light comes to us from the object that emitted it. But not all of the light is absorbed, just certain wavelengths or colours. So what we get is an assortment of dark lines rather than completely dark or completely the whole continuous spectrum from red to violet. But what's absorbing the light? Well, it's the gases and the elements in space that lie between the object that's emitting the light and us where we're detecting it. And we can actually identify what gases and elements are out there in space uh, along our line of sight um, because each gas or element has its specific absorption line. So it creates its so, specific dark Yeah, lines. so basically these are... As with us, we have our own identifying fingerprints. These are the chemical fingerprints I that like we find that. in the universe. Spectra and absorption lines are the fingerprints. I love it. So we've got uh, our spectra. We know that we have absorption lines on them. So we can actually look at other galaxies. But before we do, we might use our labs here on Earth. So we might set up a fixed light source and then our detectors, which will help us create a spectrum. And in between them, we might have different gases. And we can create our own spectra and look at where we want, where we expect to find absorption lines or those dark lines for particular elements. And this is all happening in a stationary environment where nothing is moving. If an object is a... Uh, spinning, then we can actually create spectrums of light for the opposite sides of the galaxy. So let's imagine that we have uh, one spectrum taken from one side of the galaxy, and what we see is the dark lines aren't where we expect them to be. They're actually shifted to the bluer end of the spectrum. That tells us that that part of the galaxy is moving towards us. And then if we look at the spectrum from the other side of the galaxy, we might see that the dark lines, again, aren't where we expect them to be. They're actually shifted a bit further to the red end of the spectrum. They've sort of hopped their position along. That tells us that that part of the galaxy is moving away from us. Now, I don't think it's very likely that we're going to have one part of a galaxy literally moving towards us and the other part of the galaxy moving away. 
What this actually implies is that the galaxy is spinning. As we're looking at it, one part is kind of moving towards us, but it will end up kind of circling or spinning around and vice versa on the other side. So that's how a spectrograph can actually give us the rotation of a galaxy. We can work out how a galaxy might be rotating. With their research of over 1,400 galaxies, they actually showed that smaller galaxies, so those with lower mass, actually tended to uh, rotate in a direction that aligned with those big cosmic filaments, those structures in the universe. So their axis of rotation aligned with these cosmic filaments, these small galaxies with low mass. But when they looked at the more massive galaxies, their axis of rotation was at 90 degrees to the filaments. So they weren't parallel with the filaments, they were actually perpendicular to it. But then <laughs> we think, why? What do you reckon, Patricia? Does it have something to do with the mass by any chance? It does have something to do with the mass. You see, um, they think that the alignment changes from actually being parallel, which is what they see in smaller galaxies, to being perpendicular with the cosmic filaments, which we see in massive galaxies, um, because of how galaxies might potentially merge and evolve. Let's imagine that we have uh, smaller galaxies, they're aligned with the, uh, their rotation is aligned with the cosmic filament, but perhaps then it merges and collides with a bigger one gaining more mass. It actually causes the rotation axis to flip or to change. I like to think of it a bit better as um, ice skaters. Okay, so let's take ourselves to be in an ice skating rink. We've got, uh, let's for example say you are skating in a straight line. Uh, and then your friend comes up from behind you, also skating behind you, but skating faster so that they eventually overtake you. But as they overtake you, they grab your arm. And you can imagine when they do that, you're going to end up spinning around each other. There's no way with two people of relatively comparable mass carrying on a straight line when that happens. It's going to cause you to spin. And the axis of rotation of your spin will be a vertical line with the horizontal direction that you are actually traveling in. So that's why we see the more massive galaxies that have their rotation at 90 degrees to those cosmic filaments. For example though, if you instead had a cat skating behind you, if your cat could get its paws into those skates, I'm not sure it'd be able to hold onto your hand. So let's imagine it then jumped onto your back instead. Uh, God forbid, you know, those blades getting into your back there but let's imagine a, a lower mass object a cat uh, coming from behind you in the same direction of motion but instead of uh, a larger object this is a smaller one you're likely to be able to keep your forward motion going it's unlikely that this cat coming onto you is going to cause you to change your spin if you had lots of cats I think there might be a different story there, there be, yeah. but that's what we're getting to. If you've only got a small mass, it's not going to be able to change the spin or the orientation of the spin of the galaxy. If you've got a huge mass, then uh, kind of its gravitational pull on that first galaxy will actually cause it to change its spin to come to 90 degrees with the filaments. The Milky Way, however, by example, um, has a spin that's actually quite well aligned with our nearest cosmic filament. So we are actually following the, in the footsteps of these smaller galaxies. Our spin is aligned to that cosmic filament. But our galaxy is part of a local group, so we have quite a few galaxies. 
Most of the galaxies within our local group are intermediate-sized galaxies when we compare it to the galaxies we have in our universe. And actually, it's almost uh, a 50-50 split. So some of the galaxies in our local group have their spins aligned with the cosmic filament, just like the Milky Way. But actually, others of them are perpendicular. So when we're talking about intermediate-mass galaxies, perhaps there isn't the clearest picture there just yet. Uh, but the result of this research is that we can help start to understand how galactic rotation actually builds up across a cosmic timeline. I know we're doing this with our solar system and we're trying to work out, you know, what's the eventual fate of our solar system. And to do that, we look at other star systems, but we also try and learn how our solar system formed in the past to work out what it might do in the future. And I think this is very similar where we're looking at the past to work out how these galaxies have evolved and how their spin has changed. It might indicate to us what might happen in the future. And speaking of the future... There's a new instrument called HECTOR. This one's got a name and it's not an acronym, uh, which is set to be installed at that Anglo-Australian telescope next year. And it's going to enable uh, a significant expansion of research in this field because HECTOR is going to be able to carry out surveys that are five times larger than what we have here with SAMI. So we're going to be able to collect a lot more data, a lot more galaxies, and hopefully this will help us dig into the details of the spin alignment and better understand uh, the physics behind how galaxies and their spin changes. So size really does matter, but when I say size, I mean the mass of a galaxy. So that was the story that I picked for this month. I think it's really nice to actually see simple physics of things that we might be already familiar with, but how they're helping us learn things that we didn't know before. Yeah, and it's quite interesting actually to see, well, from what this research is suggesting is that there we appears to be that alignment with those cosmic filaments. And obviously, once we get a much larger sample size, we'll be able to see whether that pattern actually does continue with that much larger sample size and hopefully maybe also resolve the whole intermediate mass galaxy problem Absolutely. and try to figure out where they slot in. So, Patricia, can you top the story this month? What have you got? I'm excited to hear. Well, I'm keeping things much closer to home this month. And by much closer to home, I mean inside our solar system. It's, it's my favorite territory to, to explore. And I want to talk about one of the questions that scientists are still trying to answer about our solar system. And that has to do with life. Is there life elsewhere in our solar system? Now, when I talk about the search for life, many people naturally think about Mars. And certainly true. We've sent lots of robotic spacecraft out there to, to explore Mars. And that search for evidence of life on Mars, either past or present life, is one of the key objectives of missions that are sent to the Red Planet. Now, life, as we know it, and that may be a little Star Trek reference, seems to have three main requirements. So from what we can tell, based on what we see here on the Earth, because we are a good reference point to, to figure this out. We need liquid water. I, I assumed that was one. Kind of important. Um, you need essential chemical elements, such as carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, and there are a couple of others. But you also need an energy source. So three important things you need for life. Now, again, looking here on the Earth, we've actually found life thriving in environments that we initially thought were inhospitable. Now, one example of this actually lies within the Earth's oceans. 
we found life thriving around hydrothermal vents and these are openings on the seafloor so these out of are which... kilometers down in the ocean yeah so you can imagine kilometers down really horrible pressures dark, at those depths cold. dark cold um, unless you happen to be around a hydrothermal vent which um, these are openings on the seafloor out of which water heated by the internal uh, heat of the earth actually sort of flows out so that energy source you're talking about that your energy source because of these kinds of discoveries it's actually made us rethink the types of environments here inside our solar system that could potentially be good for life that could be thriving environments for life and there is one object in our solar system that has now become the most promising place to look for life elsewhere in our solar system. And that's one of the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Should we moon... guess which one? You go for it. Is it Europa? It might just be Europa. So you might be wondering at this point, well, why do we think there could be life on Europa? Well, just over a week ago, at the time of recording this podcast, actually, a team of researchers using the Keck observatory in hawaii have detected water vapor for the very first time above the surface of europa now this is an important detection because it supports an idea of which many scientists are confident that there is an ocean of liquid water beneath the icy surface of europa so it's been a long-standing theory hasn't it people have theorized that there's thick icy crust yeah but underneath that it is salty enough and perhaps a little bit warmer that liquid water could exist precisely but yeah we'd never detected that water vapor before no so um this is actually as i say this is quite a significant discovery so far in terms of our, our studies of europa and and you just touched on it now is is well why do we suspect that there is that ocean there? Because that moon is so far away from us. And even though we have a spacecraft in orbit at Jupiter at the moment, it's not dedicated to any of the moons of Jupiter. Well, to answer why we think Europa has got that ocean, we actually need to do a little bit of time travel, which I love to do. Where are we going? Not as far back as you did. Um, so we're actually going to look back and we're just going to have a look at a couple of the observations that have been made over the years and that have led to this moment where we kind of have this idea of what might be happening at Europa. So for a very long time and before the era of space exploration, we were able to perform ground-based observations and from that we figured out that Europa is covered mostly with water ice. We could do that here again from your example using spectroscopy we could figure out that Europa was covered with water ice but then came the era of space exploration and that opened up the possibilities of us being able to actually send spacecraft out to those outer regions of the solar system and go and see what's happening out there go and study those objects up close which you can imagine that transitional leap from being able to or all you had was telescope observations and now you've been able to take an image up close of this object that you really want to have a look at. Astronomy has always been like this in the sense that when we think Europa was discovered by Galileo, hence it's a Galilean moon, um, and that was back in, I think it was like 1610, 
and we were using our eyes. We couldn't get to Europa. We could only look at it. And yeah. even then, it looked like a point of light in it the was sky. A point of light, yeah. And then we had our telescopes, and we saw them as perhaps more than just pinpoints of light. There was something that we we could find out about them potentially. And you're absolutely right. The idea of sending spacecrafts into space and physically being able to get to what we're looking at yeah. is a huge milestone. And you can imagine how excited scientists were when the Voyager spacecraft was sent out because the Voyager spacecraft granted not the first to head out through the outer solar system at that point that was that was the pioneer spacecraft but the Voyager spacecraft did as well was that they performed detailed flybys of Jupiter and Saturn but when they got to Jupiter the Voyager spacecraft sent back the very first images of Europa and those images actually revealed that Europa is sort of covered in these sort of brownish colored cracks across this icy surface um, and some of the features that were seen in those images actually reminded scientists of like what you would find if you had perhaps a crust of ice or an ice shelf floating on water so you can kind of imagine these little fracture marks that might appear on top of that ice. Now, bearing in mind, as I said, the Voyager missions were both flybys. So they weren't dedicated missions to, to those planets, but the images that they took nonetheless excited scientists because they weren't expecting to see what they did see. And that's what makes space exploration so exciting because it opens your eyes. Every time you send a spacecraft out, you find something new. We then sent a dedicated mission to Jupiter, and that was the Galileo spacecraft, and it explored Jupiter from about the mid-1990s through to the early 2000s. And that spacecraft in itself returned even more spectacular images of Europa. And as I mentioned, with the they kind of saw hints in the Voyager images of these cracks, but Galileo certainly confirmed that the surface of Europe was sort of covered in fractures, in ridges, in bands and spots, which are all evidence that the little icy surface of Europe is actually stretched and squeezed by the immense gravitational pull of Jupiter. So it's like a an elastic band being tugged and untugged by that huge immense pull of Jupiter's gravity and being the largest planet in the solar system, you can imagine that's quite a strain on a little moon. Precisely. And um, as we've already seen with evidence with Io, Io experiences even more extreme stretching and squeezing, and Io is volcanically active. So now you start to wonder what might be happening inside Europa. Under that icy crust. Under the icy crust, precisely. Another thing that also excited scientists was that Galileo also found evidence that a magnetic field was actually being created within Europa. So we're talking about Galileo the space probe here, not the man. No, we didn't go back in time and launch him up, but no, definitely Galileo the spacecraft. And so what scientists suspected was that there has to have been a sort of electrically conductive fluid beneath the ice that would be able to generate a magnetic field. And considering that Europa itself is an icy moon, scientists thought, well, you know what? A global ocean of salty water would be able to generate a magnetic field. So you can already see the pieces starting to fall into to build place together. now um, because of what Galileo found. Now we have to take a, a bit of a jump. So we're jumping for all the way forward to 2013 when NASA announced that scientists who were using the Hubble Space Telescope detected hydrogen and oxygen in plumes above the South Pole of Europa. So here we're now seeing plumes emerging over the South Polar region of Europa and we're seeing hydrogen 
and we're seeing oxygen. And they suspected that what we're seeing there was a result of water molecules being broken apart by electrons along magnetic field lines. You can imagine you have that really intense magnetic field. They've even seen aurora over Europa, which is wow. amazing to think of. So we're seeing hydrogen and oxygen, but we're not seeing it water together. molecules itself here. But here we have evidence. It's all building. It's like a, a case in a jury where the evidence is mounting. It, it, precisely. Now we move forward again, just a couple of years this time, to between 2016 and 2017, where another team of researchers using the Keck Observatory, which I mentioned at the beginning, performed 17 nights of observations. And they used the spectrograph, mentioned in your story as well. And this particular spectrograph was designed to measure the chemical composition of planetary atmospheres through the infrared light that they emit or absorb. Now molecules such as water emit specific frequencies or wavelengths of infrared light as they interact with solar radiation. And if you find that particular wavelength, then you know you're looking at water. And from their observations and extremely careful analysis of the data, the researchers detected one faint but distinct signal of water vapor. And this marks the first direct identification of water vapor at Europa, which in itself confirms those 2013 observations of seeing the hydrogen, hydrogen and oxygen. the oxygen. All of this is good news because it helps to support the idea that there is this global ocean at Europa. Now, from all the observations that have been obtained, we now think that Europa has an ice shell that's around 15 to 25 kilometers thick, fairly thick ice shell, which floats on an ocean that is 60 to 150 kilometers deep. Now, I'm no geographer, but I mean, that's very deep. Pretty, like it's got to be deeper than some of the oceans that we have here on the Earth. For comparison, the deepest point in the Earth's ocean is Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench, and that has a depth of just over 11 kilometers. <laughs> it's nothing in comparison. It is nothing. And although Europe itself is only about one quarter the diameter of the Earth, we now think, if it does have an ocean, that that ocean may potentially contain twice as much water as all of Earth's oceans combined. That's incredible. It's a smaller object in the solar system, smaller than the Earth by some margin, yet it has so much more water. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing to think of, as you say, that this little moon out there orbiting Jupiter has more water than what the Earth has. In addition to all of this leading up with the global ocean, earlier this year, scientists actually confirmed that the sort of yellow-colored region that you see on Europa is actually sodium chloride commonly known as salt. table salt. <laughs> now we get very excited because we're seeing salt on its surface, we're seeing water vapor above the surface in these plumes. Now, combined and the finding and the confirmation that there's salt on the surface, it does not necessarily guarantee that it comes from a global ocean, but it might do. And scientists have suggested that that salt that we're finding on the surface could indicate that the ocean floor on Europa 
is hydrothermically active. So in other words, hydrothermal vents or geysers could be blasting ocean water out through the cracks that we find on the surface of Europa. If that is the case, if there are hydrothermal vents, if there's liquid water, and we certainly know that Europa does have those essential chemical ingredients that life requires, then it would be true that Europa would meet all the conditions needed for life. Life like we know it here on the air. Or maybe life like we don't know it. It's all exciting. Again, as with everything, take it with a pinch of salt. Very good, yes. (laughs) Because we'll need to confirm all this. And the only way we can confirm the ocean idea, the ocean hypothesis, is to go there and see if there is an ocean. And that requires a dedicated spacecraft mission. Now, the good news is that there is an upcoming mission dedicated to Europa. It's called the Europa Clipper mission, and it will be launching in the mid-2020s, and it's going to go out to perform a more detailed study of Europa's surface, its interior, um, and also if, while it's in orbit, perhaps it might even capture images of the plumes, in which case they might even try to sample the material inside those plumes. As part of its mission, it's also going to be having a look at the entire surface region and finding a site for a future Europa lander mission. And that Europa lander mission would be designed to collect a sample with the possibility of returning a sample. That's always the the big thing, right? Because we've had kind of spacecrafts go to Mars. Some of them have collected samples, but we've not yet brought those samples back to the Earth. That's a big challenge. We've obviously got the sample coming back from one of the asteroids as well. The Hayabusa mission is hopefully going to be returning a sample from an asteroid. With the Mars missions, we're hoping that with part of the plans, we'll have a sample that will be returned to the Earth. It won't be returned by humans. It will be returned by another robotic spacecraft, which will bring it back. But it will be perhaps that sample from Europa, if they, if they incorporate a drill that would drill through the ice try and get a sample if they can find a global ocean of water you can imagine that that sample would be the most anticipated sample in the history of space exploration and one that might be able to answer the question is there life elsewhere in our solar system oh it's so exciting especially when we've got you know big searches for exoplanets elsewhere in the galaxy and looking for other earth-like places that we actually might have somewhere right here within our own quite local neighborhood that may be harboring life yeah and it may not be fish swimming around in the ocean it may not be humans trampling around on the surface but it could be some sort of alien life and as i always say to students when they visit on site we would be ridiculously happy if they turned out to be floppy worms in the water we just want to find some form of life. We don't care what it is. But yeah, and of course, um, some of you might also be thinking of Enceladus right now. Saturn's. Saturn's moon, also suspected to have a global ocean. Also, plumes of water vapor have been detected there. So we perhaps have two exciting places in our solar system. Weird and wonderful. Even though they're further out from the solar system, where it is generally quite colder, there are ways of actually generating heat and energy to be able to potentially harbour life. Loved the story. Absolutely loved it. We're going to put our stories uh, to the vote with you guys on Twitter. Uh, At the start of the month, please do visit our Twitter page. It's at ROG Astronomers and vote for your favourite story. We're going to keep an ongoing list of wins and losses uh, in the coming months. Patricia, last month's Twitter stories, how did it go? How did you and Greg fare with your stories last month? 
So last month, Greg and I chose to speak about, um, so for Greg, he chose to speak about planet formation and some new ideas that had come about because of observations that had been performed with ALMA. And I spoke about the image, well, the very first image of Mars that was taken by the Mariner 4 spacecraft that was colored in using colorful pastels by the some of the engineers at NASA who were, didn't want to wait for the computer to process the image. And... We've had a look at our poll results. And the winner? It's a draw this oh. month. So well done, Greg. We achieved a draw. And I think this month the competition is going to be quite stiff as well. It too, your story was really good. We really enjoyed it. There's lots of good stories popping out all the time. So it is really hard to choose a story for the month as well. But we've got our results from last month. Like we mentioned, we're going to put these uh, two stories out to the vote for you guys to vote for the first week of the month. So please do cast your votes there. If you are listening on one of our different channels, uh, you may know that we have uh, alternative ones that you can listen on. So we have Look Up available on our iTunes account. We also are hosting on SoundCloud. And if you haven't checked it out, uh, we also have our Night Sky Highlights blog where you can have a breakdown of what you can see in the night sky with images to follow as well and if you are on soundcloud listening you may also find some of our other podcasts including interviews with active researchers in universities uh, and even uh, an interview with an astronaut on there so that brings us to the end of our look up podcast for this month we hope you all have a wonderful festive period a great christmas and we will both see you in the next year (laughs) 